0: Uh, We have a special guest this morning who's going to be preaching for us. Jeff Thomas, who's a pastor, been a pastor probably a lot longer than some of you have been alive. Uh, And the best thing he's got going for him is he has and Turner as his niece. And we all love Gwinnon, so we'll love you. But I will say this, I had J.I. Packer in seminary for a winter term course on new creation, new life, new covenant, new... I forget it all, but it was a lot. He reminds me so much of him, uh, just listening to him. You're in for a real treat. I heard him in Sunday school. If you didn't catch that, it will be on the website or on Facebook where the uh, sermons and Sunday school are presented every week uh, so that you can benefit from that. Uh, Jeff, would you come down and preach to us, brother?
1: Well, thank you very much for those uh, kind words, and it's a delight for me to spend a weekend with Gwenan and Keith, and uh, to preach to you today. Before going on to um, Macarthur's um, conference next week, and then I'm in Maser in uh, in Cornerstone Church um, next weekend, and then home to my to my wife again. I want to draw your attention to. Uh, Luke 15, the parable of the the prodigal son. You know it so well. And uh, verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here, and kill it, and let's eat and be married, for this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found." This is an oral portrait of God's redemption, and it has its own validity. And its own finality. It is as a parable more accurate and more moving and more profound than a series of straightforward statements that I could make theologically to explain the glories of God's redemption. The picture is very evocative and open-ended, and you all know it. It's been hooked in a memory cell in your life maybe for 70 years. The story itself is what we fall back on and there are three truths that I break it up into to help you to grip it. I want this picture to live with you for the rest of the week. It's an old man running to kiss and hug his son before his son changes his mind. There are three R's. The first is the R of rebellion. There's a boy who went to his landowning father one day and said to him, Gimme. And it wasn't a coat of many colors that he asked for, and it wasn't a white stallion, but he asked for his share of the estate. And receiving that, he would then leave all rights to his father's land. All that remained would go to his older brother you know how it worked in those days. The father divided the property between the two sons. The younger son turned his share into cash, and the actual land was valued and then divided into the two. And he sold his share to someone else, and the shame that that would bring to the family would be added to the shame of the father of the son already asking his father before his death he wanted his share. It was the equivalent of saying I wish you were dead and the father is an amazing man. He bore these two blows without recrimination There are people who can't understand that in many, many cultures of the world. I have a friend, and he works in a racially mixed area where there are a lot of immigrants that have come in, and he plays uh, table tennis and pool with them on a Friday night, and then he tells them a story of the Bible. And he told them this story, and he said to them, What would happen in your country if a boy asked his father for the share of Of all that was coming to him, and they talked among themselves, and they would said, and they said to him, the father would kill him. And so, there's a mystery here of the extraordinary patience and grace of this father. We're told that the son got all he had and turned everything into cash, He was leaving once and for all. He was not returning. Everything was taken that he wanted, and he was never coming back. He would put as many miles as he could between himself and his father. He found that old life restricting and suffocating and narrow. He would head for a place from where far, far from where he had been raised. He went to another country, Jesus said, a distant country. He went through countries to get to this country. And he was choosing the life of paganism over the privileges of living in the promised land. He turned his back on the covenant people of God. Like any young person would say, I'm not going to church any longer. He will have nothing to do with it. He wanted no reminders of God. It's uh, an illogical, it's an impossible step to take because you can't escape from God. He can wake you up at three o'clock in the morning and touch your memory and impress upon you the reality that he is and that he lives And he constrains you to think of him. Now, this boy went to a a new country, and there he made new friends. He spoke another language. He dressed in a different style of clothes. He had new habits and new traditions. And um, the year had a different shape from what it once had. I've got away from it all, he said. I hated so much. Nobody knows me here. I I can do whatever I want without any comments, without any tut-tuts, without knowing that my father was waiting up for me, that he wouldn't go to bed until I got home. He tasted all the forbidden pleasures. That. He couldn't do in his Father's narrow world. It wasn't that he could now go to 21st birthday celebrations or go to weddings and anniversaries. All such activities are legitimate to the people of God now. Jesus himself went to weddings and to feasts. But this young man was unrestrained in his sensuality and his spendthrift extravagance. His motto was, spend, 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 for tomorrow we die. And in that process then, he gathered around him a gang of hangers-on. Every itch was scratched. Every appetite was satisfied. He deprived himself of no new sensation. He sowed to the flesh. He thought that is the way for the abundant life. He never lacked companionship until the time came far faster than he ever imagined when um, he ran out of cash. He discovered that he spent everything, no more free feasts, no more roast poke for his cronies, no more hunting expeditions, no more old wine, no more women to buy. He didn't have a penny in his pocket, and he didn't have an auntie living in a corner of that city that he could go and stay with. No family, no fair-weather friends. They'd all left him. And then, compounding the dilemma that he was in, a famine hit the land. Month after month, no rain, unemployment. People fleeing into the city looking for some some money, some help. The boom became bust, and the dream had faded in an endless burning sun. Friends, no more. Confronted with a groaning world, life lived under the curse. But he could fall further still. He was a Jew, and anything to do with pigs was bad enough. For him to be feeding them, for them to be new companions each day, was more despicable. Could he fall any further? Yes, he could. He was hungry enough to feed the food to himself that the pigs ate. His degradation reached a new low. He herded the swine, he herded with the swine, he ate from their feeding troughs. Sin is a bad master. He was in bondage to poverty amongst the pigs. And what began as one thrill after another ended in serfdom. He was like a party drinker who becomes a drunk. He was like a drug addict who becomes addicted. He was like the promiscuous person who gets sexually transmitted diseases. The party had become a prison. That's what sin does when it captivates and conquers all those who give themselves to it. You see the picture here. You see the depths to which this boy had fallen. There are no redeeming features about this man. From the time he asked his father for his portion of the inheritance and heads off as far as he can go right to the field of pigs. Now you can allegorize this if you want to. You can make that error. And you can say, ah, the prodigal son is the sinner. You can say that he's a type of every sinner, that he's a long way from God. And before you know it, you're facing a congregation with many of you in it, and you're saying to every man and woman and those middle-aged ladies of the utmost decorum, there you are with the pigs and the prostitutes, squandering all that your loving Father has given to you. That is not the message of this parable. This man is how he is described for us in Luke 15. He's a rake He's a fool. He's a drunkard. He's a waster. He's a derelict. He's a heartbreaker. That is what he is. He's not standing here in this parable as a symbol of an ordinary sinner. He's in the extreme. He's on the waterfront. He's in low company, and he's thrown out of them. If ever there was a son who his father would refuse to have him back, it would be This son, if ever there was a sinner that God would reject, it would be this boy, this prodigal, this Saul of Tarsus, this torturer, this Jesus hater, this Gadarene demoniac, this John Newton, this policeman who rapes and and kills and burns the body of a, a woman that he comes across. No ordinary sinner. But he's on the lowest rung of the ladder, an inch above the surface of the cesspit, and sinking ever faster. And you see the angels and there's Gabriel and there's Michael and they're talking together, and Gabriel's saying to Michael, Is this the worst we've ever seen? Is he worse than King Saul? Is it worse than the Gadarene demoniac? Is it him? Is this the worst one? The angels are discussing it and say, God will surely not accept someone as despicable as this lad. It means, you see, for you and me that we can never think, let alone say someone as bad as me. We can never be converted. We could never change. We could never be a child of God. We could never run into the presence of Almighty God and say, Abba, you're my loving Father. You've forgiven all my sins. There's no hope because I'm an abandoned man. But here's this boy, and it's the worst possible scenario. The most abandoned, the most selfish lad, the most cruel, the most wretched the most hopeless. He's the chief of sinners. And yet there is a road for from him to where God is that he can take. There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. And we might today have wandered into this place with a great crushing burden of abandonness, and hypocrisy and intellectual arrogance and we're overwhelmed with the pain we gave our parents and gave to our wife or to our husband, the people who loved us the most. And I want to say to you there's a way to God from where you are now this very moment. So there's the ruin of this son, and then secondly we see the repentance What is the theme that runs through this chapter? It is not that God rejoices in sinners. Not at all. It is that God rejoices in sinners who repent. It's there in verse 7. It's there in verse 10. So what does it mean? What is it to turn? What does it mean? And the answer is in this parable of the prodigal son. What happened to him? Well, two or three things happened to him. Firstly, he came to his senses. Verse 17, he saw what he'd done. He realized just the state in which he was in. He knew where he was at. He was far from home, he was penniless, he was homeless. He was hopeless. He was disgraced. He was discredited. He was abandoned. He was all alone. And he came to his senses. And not a typical sinner, but the worst sinner. And if we are to come to God, and I want every one of you today to come to God, every one of you, without exception. I want you to face up to yourselves this morning. Maybe like the prodigal, you have the hallmarks of perdition on you. Maybe your sin is notorious and you, you start to see it with judgment day honesty. It's one of the great marvels of the Bible, isn't it? You'd have thought that this guy he would have for years, certainly for the past months, would realize what a sick fellow he was, what a vast ego he, he was that he could treat so wonderful a father the way he did. And some people are so abandoned, and, and you say to your wife or your husband, you say, they, they must know the truth about themselves. They have to know The alcoholic knows. The pedophile, surely he he knows. The drug addict, he knows what he's doing to his health. He realizes. His church, his friends, they realize. He must realize, too. He must know. Surely he knows. And yet you read the Old Testament, and here is King David who wrote the 23rd Psalm and he's lusted after a woman, and he's taken her, and he's impregnated her, and he's had her fine husband killed. And he doesn't seem to be in the least troubled. No contrition at all. And you'd think that he couldn't sleep at night, that he'd be overwhelmed, But God has to send a prophet to him. Nathan goes to him and tells him a story and says, You're the man. You're the man. He tells him, Adultery is sin. Murder is sin. And God knows, and you answer to him. There are many men and women in Las Vegas. Their sin is staring them in the face, but they haven't come to their senses. They're standing in the forecourt of eternity on the threshold of their judgment, and all they have are the baubles and the toys of materialism, the remnants of a career, some property, some family, some money, some memories. That's all. That's the lot. They haven't come to their sense. They haven't come to themselves. Vanity or vanities. All is vanity. We have our goals. We have our objectives, our chief ends towards which we are aiming the rest of our lives. Then, John Milton, at that moment when we think the prize is in our grasp come the blind furies with their abhorred shears and they s- slit the thin, spun thread. What have we got? I don't want to se- sentimentalize, but you recall the tragic endings of some great statesmen Winston Churchill, Ronald Reagan, all the achievements, all the ego reinforcing attainments of outstanding lives, these enormously influential. Good men, with the plaudits and accolades that they received from the nations they led, and yet at the end, what did they have? What were they? It seems to speak so eloquently, then, of the insubstantial nature of human attainments, because they'd attained so much, and yet at the end, did they know it? Did they recognize their wives? Did they realize that they were adored and respected all over the world? I doubt if they ever knew it. So repentance is facing up to yourselves. Coming out of the shadowlands without God to self-evaluation and self-understanding the gospel is not a call to fantasy. The gospel is a manifestation of true truth, real reality, facing the all honest, honestly, what you are. So that's the first thing he came to himself. And secondly, repentance is remembering the Father. That word Father occurs only once in the parables so far, but now from verse 6 to 17 it, it occurs seven times. The shorter catechism tells us that repentance begins with an apprehension of the mercy of God. You start to believe that though you are killing yourself with your ego your vanity, your wretchedness, your pride. God still can be merciful to you. We know a person will never repent unless there's hope. It may be just a glimmer, just a maybe, but he must feel God will show me mercy then to me. Jesus said, Him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Sinners Jesus will receive, sound the word of grace to all who the heavenly pathway leave, all who linger, all who fall, sing it o'er and o'er again, Christ receiveth sinful men. I don't care who you are or where you've been, where you spent last night, doesn't matter if you come to him in repentance for your sin, there's no way you'll be cast out. There's that hope, there's that glimmer for every man. Well, what caused this change in this boy? Well, somewhere in this boy's childhood, there had been indelibly implanted in his consciousness that whenever things went wrong, and however badly they went wrong, he could always go back. He could always go home. He must. He hadn't been taught, if you bring disgrace on the family, then then never come back. He hadn't been conditioned to the view, if you let us down, don't bother to come back. If you bring shame on us as a family, you stay away. He'd been told, and he saw this truth lived out by the practice of his father. However low you go, however deep the abyss, however appalling the degradation, you must always remember this is your home, son, and here you can return. And I would beg and plead with all the parents that are here this morning that they give their children the same absolute and unconditional security that your sons, your daughters know. If they face the ultimate in tragedy, they can still come home. If they're drunkards, they can come home. If they marry the wrong people, they can come home. If they get sexually transmitted diseases, they can still come home. If they get pregnant, they can come home. If they have an abortion, they can come home. If they end up in jail, they can come home. They may have, they must have, they must have that assurance. It's one of the basic elements of divine pedagogy. That's how God trains his children. He wants them to exemplify and reflect his own fatherhood, and that's how God trains his children. He wants them to exemplify and reflect his fatherhood. He wants them to have this security that this boy comes to his senses and this, this distant city. He remembers his father, and he remembers his father's words to him, Son, you know you can always come home. And that's Repentance. There is the turning from the love of the world, from the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and a turning to God. And then repentance, you see, the third thing about it is that it's, it's n- not perfect. Uh, it's like our faith is not a perfect faith. We say, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. We say, Father, I repent, help thou my unbelief unrepentant heart. And so the son rehearsed what he was going to say when he got home and he saw his father and he would say, um, Father, I, I, I have sinned against heaven and, and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your yes, son. Make, make me as one of your hired servants. That's what I'll say. And he repeated it to himself. He got the speech, the sentences right as he wandered back more slowly than he came from the distant country through the other countries and then into the promised land. He'd been full of excitement and anticipation when he was going. He was full of doubt now about the welcome he would get. So he made a little speech. I can never be a member of your family again, but um, hire me when it's autumn and the harvest time and we men stand in the marketplace and the foreman comes down to choose. Please choose me. Hire me as your servant. These were his thoughts. He had the lowest expectations of this wonderful father. He lost all self-respect. And now he wanted the simple status of a hired servant, a job. Give me a job. His father was too small in his eyes. And yet his father took him back, he cut down his speech. I'm saying to you, there can be a lot of confusion about you coming to... You, know, you don't understand some things about the Trinity and the kingdom of God. And you're not sure about Jesus Christ and what he's done for you, but you know you're a sinner and you need a Savior, that that's all you know. And you're sorry for the things you've done and the people you hurt. And sometimes you think of the girl and wonder how she's doing now. And you're making your way back. That's your providence in coming here this morning. And the Word of God is encouraging you to, to come back. And lastly, we have the return. He comes to the top of the hill and he looks down at that country lane and the White House where he grew up in that happy home, and that wonderful father and mother that he had. And he's fearful, he's trying to remember his speech, and he pauses and he looks down. What will his father do that he's hurt so much? What welcome will he get? Every day the father went over and he pulled the curtain aside and he looked up up the path to the hill. Would there be a figure? Did it numbers of times every day. That, moment, that morning he, he pulled the curtain aside and there was somebody there. There was somebody on the path. And he got up and he... He went across and opened the farm door and he walked across the farmyard and opened the gate and he looked up and there was a boy, there was a boy. And he knew the silhouette, that boy and the little strut in his walk and he was there. And he started to go and to walk and and to run. Old man, beware, brittle bones, beware, don't run, old man, be careful, old man. But he couldn't stop. It was his boy, and he, he had to have him. He might change his mind, and he ran and ran until he caught him and wrapped his arms around him and hugged him so tight and wet his face with his tears, my son. My son, I'll never let you go again. My son, my son. And three breathless servants came running up, and he said to the first, bring the, the best robe, you know, it's in the wardrobe in my bedroom. It's hanging up there. You, you bring that, and at the bottom of the wardrobe, there are a pair of sandals there. You, you, you bring them with you. And the next boy, he said, the, the, the ring of sonship is in the chest of drawers. It's in the living room. You'll see it. It's a black box. It's in the second, it's in the second drawer down. I've often looked at it and hoped he'd wear it again. And the third servant, he says, get the fatted calf. Now we know why we've been fattening it. get a fire going and slaughter the, the fatted calf and get the band and tell the women no work today and tell them to put on their best clothes and to clear the farmyard for country dancing. My son was dead. <laughs> He's alive. My son was lost found him, and they began to rejoice. You've got to draw that wonderful picture in words now. It's a picture of the great welcome that God gives to despicably awful and wicked people who for years have kept him out of their lives. But grace reaches them and convicts them, and the Spirit indwells them and gives them a new heart and a new spirit and gives them life from the dead. And in that moment, God does so much to us. God pardons all our sins, all our past sins, all our present sins all our future sins sin was written all over this boy's face and father doesn't mention a thing it's registered in his whole appearance god doesn't hurl our past at us when we come as a sinner to jesus we've been so unsanitary and we are made as clean as freshly blown snow your sins were scarlet. You come just as you are and say, "Well, sorry, it's been so long." Here I am. You know all about me, and you're welcoming me. How amazing! Sure, the boy began to say, "Dad, I'm. Um, you want to talk about what I did? I'm so sorry." He can't believe that God could cast all his sins into the depths of the ocean and remember them no more. The past is past. And we are made sons. It is not then, okay, five years you live in the room above the barn as a servant and then we'll have a family pow wow and we'll discuss whether you can be whether you can be a, a son of mine again it's not that immediately the best robe immediately the ring of sonship immediately the sandals of sonship immediately the feast and the joy and the welcome Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. If any man is in Christ, he's a a new creation. This man had walked home all the way and his desire was, um, I hope they won't throw me out. I hope I can at least work there again. His father made him a son joint heirs with Jesus, joint heirs, so that whatever Jesus inherits because of his obedience to the death of the cross, so so we get the same inheritance, the same love that loves Jesus, loves us. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. We are given the gift of God, the Holy Spirit. He comes into these sick hearts of ours and gives us health, these dirty hearts of ours and gives us cleaning. Father, I can't make it as your son. I can't. I've fallen in the past. I'll fall again. I don't want to bring disgrace. Can we make it? Some of you are afraid that you won't make it, but you're thinking of, what you were now struggling. A man who is in Christ has, is a partaker of a divine nature, and he can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And that's your hope from now on, not, not me, but, but, but Christ. We come so tremulously. We have nothing at all to bring, and God gives us everything. All we have needed, his hand has provided. Great is his faithfulness unto us. He gives us his Son. Imagine, God has a Son, and he gives that Son to us forever and ever. Life-renewing, irrigating our lives, Adopted into his family. What did this boy do? He came to himself. What did this boy do? He made a decision I will set out and go to my father. No person ever came to Jesus Christ without making a decision. Unashamedly, I want every one of you to make a decision this morning. I'm going to my father. That's the decision I want you to make. This boy was transformed. He's a... Recovery was achieved by coming to himself and returning home, going home, come home. All of you, you come home. There's a father, and his arms are outstretched, and he'll meet you halfway. He'll run. He'll embrace you. It's been the longest time for some of you to come to this decision. You come. The arms of love that compass me would all mankind embrace. Ah, we come to certain decisions and then we move back from them. We decide we'll go home, and we'll turn over a new leaf, and then we drop the book. We say, not yet. You ask me what saved this boy. Well, I would say an enormously loving, caring father saved him. You ask me what saved this boy. He came to himself and he made the decision to go home. Both those things saved him. His father's immense love and the decision that he made in his heart, an imperfect one I'll return. I'll go home to my father. Let's believe in the mercy of God. Let's believe that it is immense. It is far greater than our imagination could possibly grasp. It is deep. It is high. It is as far as the east is from the west in its width. Let's start now going to this immense God. This God that's brought you here today to tell you this, this God who's brought you here today with the intention that you could make a decision, that you from now on are going to be the children of God, sons of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, all things working together for your good, God supplying all your needs, God with you, in you, going before you, alongside you, behind you, above you, underneath you, every preposition in relationship to you. This God, this wonderful God. I can't understand how, if you've seen a glimpse this morning of how great the love of God is, you you can go back, go back to your television sets, go back to your casinos, Go back to one relationship after another, to your drugs, to your drinking, and say no to this God. How can you? How can you do that? God in his providence has brought you here for you to bow before him and say, my Lord and my God. You know there's no formula, but from now on, oh, start talking to him. This morning, talk to him. When you sit in the seat, when the service is over, talk to him. When you drive home in the car, talk to him. When you sit this afternoon and read the Bible, talk to him. When you lie in bed tonight, talk to him. And talk and keep talking until he answers, until he gives you the inward witness of the Holy Spirit, that the spirit of adoption you son, not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. Oh, you, you come now. You come to the Savior. I beseech you. You come, just as you are, to just as he is. God is love. May he bless his word. Let's pray together. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness that we've heard again. Just how wonderful you are. Oh, what a privilege it is for us to gather in Jesus' name and know that walking the aisles and sitting next to us and nudging us and keeping us, pulling our minds back when they wander. Think about these things you say to us. These things are real. These things are true, and that's why you should become, every one of you, children of a heavenly Father, because his love is as deep as an ocean, as high as the moon. Lord, have mercy on everyone here, on those that have professed faith in the past and have now long gone. Those who've got the coldest heart, we pray for him. The most wicked man or woman, we pray for them. Oh, God, in your kindness and in your mercy, hear us. Please save us. Please save us from ourselves. Make us your children, Lord. And give glory to the one who is worthy of it, even Jesus Christ